Hello, everybody. My name is TJ Hensley, and you're listening to Appalachian Firesides. Hey everyone, thank you for joining the podcast once again. Uh, Joining me this week is my very, very good friend, Bailey, from uh, Harlan County. He and I went to uh, middle school and high school together, grew up together, Uh, one of my very best friends. Uh, He and I have uh, a lot of the same interests, as you'll hear over the course of the episode, and I was able to have him as my guest this week, and we discussed matters of Appalachian politics, uh, the kind of grassroots movement that we think will help to bring a real and positive change to Appalachia. And we discuss other things as well, so I hope that you all enjoy this episode. One disclaimer, uh, as you all may tell based on the audio of the episode, I recorded this over Zoom, and I didn't have the best internet connection, and so there are some times in which the audio is kind of choppy because of some lag in the uh, Zoom call that Bailey and I had, so... I apologize for that. I tried to clean it up as best I can in editing, uh, but I hope that you all enjoy it. It's still a good episode. The conversation that we had is just great. Uh, hopefully soon, Bailey and I will be able to meet in person for interviews, and so that that should be uh, much better audio then. Unfortunately, the poor audio also caused the last 10 minutes of our conversation to have to be uh, excluded from this episode. He and I started uh, discussing the 2024 presidential race, which we all know is right around the corner, just two years away. And unfortunately, we were abruptly cut off because I had hit my time limit on the Zoom meeting that we were uh, having. And and so I wasn't able to properly end the episode by thanking Bailey for being on, as I usually do when I have guests. So uh, if there seems to be an abrupt end to the conversation, that is the reason I apologize for that. Again, when Bailey and I are able to meet in person for uh, another conversation, as is the same with uh, other guests that I may have, the audio will be of much better quality and will be full length this time. So uh, I apologize for that. I think that Bailey and I will save our conversation about 2024 and our views and theories and predictions for the next time that he and I get together. But in the meantime, I hope that you all enjoy this conversation, enjoy this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Let's get to it. Can you see me? I don't know. I can't see. All I can see is your name. Just my name. Okay. What yeah. about? Okay. Okay. I was asleep. Is that why, no. Is that why you needed the coffee or just because, because either. I just always need a coffee. Have you ever, have you ever coffee. done, have you ever done pour over? Oh yeah. I have that exact same one. I love it. It's the best cup of coffee that i've ever had and i've had all of them what coffee are you using so uh it's called eight o'clock have you ever heard of it yeah Yeah, apparently it's the kind that dad said they always had in the chow hall 
whenever he was in. And so, like, he found it in Kroger when we first moved me up here, when we went grocery shopping. And he bought, like, bags and bags and bags of it to take home. Like, that's all that he'll drink anymore since he rediscovered the taste of it. They also have it at Food City. That is where he's been getting it recently. Because we used to use it for the coffee shop whenever we would run out of our that makes our sense. Lincoln Road. How how is everyone at um how's it how's everything going there? I haven't been in I haven't been able to stop by in a while. Everything going on? I, I don't work there anymore. I haven't worked there since January, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Has it been that long since I, you've I, been in there? Yeah, because the last time I remember going there was like right after I got back from England. So that would have been December. But it was the day that you spent the day with me, right? The day in there. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last time I was in there. Oh, wow. Anyways, but what had happened was I was, um, I was, I started school and I'm going to LMU five days a week. So on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, I was getting up and driving to LMU and I was there by nine yeah. And then I would have class until two and then I would come back and I would work until seven thirty or eight. So I was just dead. Yeah, that's not a conducive relate um schedule to um people of our profession students. Yeah. So now I'm just a scholar. You're just you're a scholar. scholar. You're you're a full time scholar. Um I'm glad that you're finally uh joining me. I'd have been like when I started, I was very sporadic in like publishing episodes and I didn't like that. And so I've tried to be more consistent and I, I just finished recording an episode with a friend of mine here from Whitesburg. And so I thought, let's have Bailey. Bailey's always. Yeah. I, I knew you'd be able to make some good contributions. I just wasn't sure if you'd like to sully your standing by coming on a program like this. That's just not, you know not what not not reputable yeah not reputable i'm definitely not reputable at all i don't know you're one of the most hmm, what should i say you seem like a fourth of of a leading authority on appalachian youth issues funny funny enough that you say that a friend of mine that i met at gsp he's double majoring in something to do with policy at George Washington University. Is it public policy? It's not public policy. It's like a mesh between economics and environmental sustainability and poli-sci. It's like one of those cool, like three, four different things wrapped into one kind of deal major, um, but broadly related to like politics and stuff. And he basically, he told me that he constructed his capstone like research around me because he wanted to, look into how youth in Eastern Kentucky look at economic development. And he said those same words that you said, like a leading authority. And I felt like so good about myself. I started crying on the inside because, you know, no, but no, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I like, like I told you, even though you, um, you know, what did you say? Like dealer's choice. Whenever I asked you what you wanted to talk about, um, I'm I'm insistent that you you set the terms for the conversation and I will just like be here because like I I, I just want to I just want to I just want to get people I just want to do my small part in countering the crap that JD Vance is doing so like I actually want people who are from 
you know, Kentucky properly, not just like claiming it to have their, have their, their stage, their soapbox as the great Miss Kathy Thomas would say. Well, I mean, I guess I'll start with sort of a controversial topic about if you want to, it's not so much about Kentucky, it's about Appalachia as a whole. Oh no, yeah, go, go for it. As far as, as far as leftist politics and not even leftists or progressive, but just um, liberal politics in general. And I think it's that it's sort of, and I, I mean, I feel victim to this too, but it's sort of a naive view to believe that Appalachia is some progressive liberal paradise. Um, and I think it's something that our generation specifically has wanted to believe and sort of tried to force ourselves to believe for a really long time. Mm. Because there are, I mean, yes, there are grassroots progressive movements here, and there are a lot of people our our age and even older who are extremely progressive and extremely open-minded towards, you know, other races and sexualities and gender identities and everything like that, but um, that's the minority. It's the definitive minority, and I don't particularly see a near future where that minority, where it's going to change. I think that for a very long time, it will probably still be the minority. Um, Just because I think that's how indoctrination works. I think that in places like this, in Appalachia, um, you know, those beliefs, they're they're taught from a young age. And sure, you have groups of people who do eventually unlearn that. Um, You know, you have people like me who who are gay and are forced to unlearn it just by coming to terms with themselves. And then yeah. you've got people like you who sort of hold on until your fingertips start to bleed and pull yourself out that way. Um, so I, but I, I definitely think that, that we need to sort of, if there's any sort of, if we want any sort of chance to actually have any of a progressive candidate in to represent an Appalachian state, we sort of have to step back from identity politics because that's never going to be something that sells here. You're right. What will sell is, 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 is a labor party. Um, you know, a candidate, a progressive candidate who focuses more on unionization and lowering taxes and steps back. And as bad as I hate to say it, um, steps back from environmental issues, even, um, but I mean, you know, West Virginia and, and Kentucky, specifically Southeastern Kentucky, there, th- those are coal fields. No, you're not gonna, you know, you can't run the mines aren't just, the mines aren't just an economic opportunity in these areas and right. towns. They're a cultural, they're, they're of cultural significance. Absolutely. But I think it's cruel and I think it's dismissive to believe that it's something that can just happen overnight because it's deconstructing an entire cultural identity. Mm. And that's not something that happens overnight. But back to my original point, I think that if we hope to have some sort of progressive uprising, you know, similar to, to a New Deal era in Appalachia, it's going to have to be one that steps away from identity politics and environmentalism and focus, I guess, steps away from the Democratic Party and establishes mm. itself as almost an independent organization yeah. that's sort of agnostic on social issues. Or I don't want to say agnostic, but doesn't take a hard stance on social issues. 
I think it should be left up to the candidates. I think if you establish this sort of third labor party as as a as a power in Appalachia, I don't think that it should take a hard stance that's that way it would be known for, oh, that's a Labor Party candidate. They definitely support Green New Deals and abortions and same-sex marriage. I think that it should be, oh, that's a Labor Party candidate. They support unionization and breaking up big businesses and um, lowering working class taxes and creating better working conditions. Because at the end of the day, the people in Appalachia, the, the main, the majority of people in Appalachia who you're trying to appeal to, they're not, their main concern isn't social issues and their main concern isn't the environment. Yeah, they're important issues that need to be addressed, obviously, but what the, what these people are concerned with are making sure that their children have clothes, making sure that they can put food on the table. And they feel left behind by the current Democratic Party. And I can't say that I blame them mm -hmm. because nobody talks about the miners. Nobody talks about Appalachian workers, blue collar workers. I mean, in other parts of the country, yeah, people definitely appeal to the lower working class, but Appalachia is kind of left behind in that aspect. And I think that, I think that that's what needs to happen. I think that we sort of need to take a step back from things like I said, as, as I've said three or four times already, identity politics and environmentalism and focus on day-to-day -day needs because that's what's going to win voters, not big, broad issues that they feel like is coming from the big city by people who don't represent their interests. Right. And I also think that you're not going to be able to have candidates who, I think if you're going to have a, a successful labor-like party in the United States, then the people who run for office can't be, you can't have Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warrens who come from these sort of higher class societies. And I mean, I know that Bernie doesn't necessarily, but I mean, at the moment he is in a larger tax bracket and he has sort of set, it, set himself up as a radical. I mean, how I'm in full support of him, but I'm just mm -hmm. saying that here, I think the first thing you would need is new candidates that nobody's heard of. And I think that small business owners and linemen, I don't think that we need any more lawyers or politicians. We need working class people yeah. to represent working class people. And really, I think that we need working class people who recognize the uniqueness of the Appalachian region. Yeah. Uh, you've brought up so many like great points. And first of all, I completely agree with you that the notion of Appalachia as being What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a monolith is something that we need to stay away from one way or the other. It's not, you know, you and I are very adamant about showing that it's not just that everybody from Appalachia is, you know, uh, ultra conservative, far right on every, every single issue. issue. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. We have to acknowledge that it's not really a uh haven for progressive politics either and and because of the reason that you laid out right because like there are issues i should say that are the most pressing to people from our area and that you know that's stuff like healthcare, that's stuff like infrastructure that's stuff like you know good wages and making sure that they can put food on the table and when i'm glad you brought up infrastructure yeah because that's something i really touch on because i think that that is something that well, really, I think that that's why FDR had such a high success rate in this area was because until that 
time Appalachia, I mean, obviously areas like Harlan and Middlesbrough mm. are kind of, I mean, Middlesbrough was called the little Las Vegas, but, yeah. but smaller towns like Pineville and Whitesburg, I think that the new deal with FDR was one of the first pieces of legislation that made these people feel like those in Washington noticed them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and saw that they were in need and that they needed help and that their area mattered too. Right. Well, and that's, that's why um, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was one of the most important aspects of the new deal as it impacted Appalachia. That was the first time that action had been taken by the federal government to like improve the standard of living for everybody in the whole region. And, you know, in a sense, this is, this is what I'm writing my senior thesis about, you know, that same approach can be taken now you know, not only not only as a basis for like a political movement, as you and I have been talking about, but in just the bare minimum, you know, federal attention and real concern for the day to day lives of average people, of working people, of, you know, people who who feel left behind because in a lot of ways they have been left behind by, you know, both parties, like you mentioned, you know. Taking that method of devoting attention and resources to distressed areas directly in ways that they need and that can immediately make their lives better is absolutely what needs to happen now. And I think that you're right that it has to that that, that that's what we need to focus on because it's it's by improving their standard of living of people in places like Harlan and, and other places like it all over the country, not just in Appalachia improving the standard of living of people in distressed areas is how you can most readily win them over when they show that you when you show that you care about them and that they're you care about their betterment and when we do get entrenched in these battles of identity politics like you were saying it becomes like the the way that it's been playing over for the last 20 years you know that that area is always votes Republican. So let's not go there. We're wasting money. We're wasting time. Let's go to places where we have more swing voters. Well, the reason that you don't have many swing voters here is because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but I think for one of the ignored biggest it. reasons, it's been ignored. It's been ignored. Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, well, the longer the that you would strikes, the black jewel strikes from a few years ago. Yes. Um, I think Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump both sent pizzas, but could you, imagine if say bernie sanders would have came to harlan and talked to the black jewel protesters like charles booker did i mean you it's it would be naive to think that that went over. exactly it would be naive to think that that one went over votes but it does yeah it would it, it, it absolutely would. does because at the end of the day you want to feel you want to feel noticed mm-hmm. by the people who are going to lead you and represent you no, you're you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that you brought up the point of, you know, because I, I do think that the animosity that is associated with the Democratic Party in places like Appalachia is not wholly misplaced because, you know, it was policies pushed by main. Well, what were then mainstream Democrats, things like free trade and a weakening of the social safety net under under Bill Clinton and, and, and other similar similarly minded individuals that led people to think, well, the Democrats really don't don't seem to care about me anymore. Let's see what these other guys have to offer. And it's only by, I think, a new holy grassroots movement that we can we can change things. And you have people who are in favor of 
changing the Democratic Party from within to make it more like a labor party. Like you were saying, you have people who are in favor of abandoning the Democrats and creating that new movement. And but see, I don't think reform from inside will do it because I think I think that the way that modernity has set politics up in the United States specifically has created such a such an identity for the Democrat and Republican Party that there's no way that you could change how they're viewed at this point. I think that that's already set. I think if you want any sort of change within these parties, be it Democratic or Republican, you're going to have to create new parties. Yeah. Well, I, I think you need I think you need a clean slate to build up from. I'm very much inclined to agree with you there. Really, I think that so. I've said this a couple times, but like the biggest reason that I've remained. I'd say the biggest reason that I've remained a Democrat and haven't switched to like independent is because you really can't make your voice heard in like any kind of primary elections. And, you know, that's and and that that is I wish it weren't that way, but that's the way that others have set up the system so that they can keep a hold of power. And I, I think you're right that there needs to be some kind of new movement to really instigate that grassroots level of change and relating it back to specific candidates like like you were saying. I think that you will see that with with Charles Booker. I think he has a better shot than than others or I think he, I think he has a good shot. I really do because when you look at his campaign, he is focusing on those issues like infrastructure and healthcare and uh wages and unionization and he is moving in that direction because he understands that it, it, I think he understands that you do have to have that kind of new change that you can't just be like the same old same old kind of candidate and that's the same argument he made in 2020 against amy mcgrath and came within a hair of winning the primary over her even though she was the hand-picked candidate of the dnc and so that yeah, right there that right there shows that, huh i think her campaign was one of the most expensive in like kentucky state oh history. it was absolutely and i think that charles booker has a really good shot of being that's you know Think about it. Everybody was surprised in 2019 when um, Andy Bashir beat Matt Bevan. And so I, I wouldn't put it past Charles Booker to be the candidate who can say, and he's been emphasizing how like Rand Paul has not done like a lick of anything to actually like make people's lives better in Kentucky. And I think that his emphasizing that along with the, the bread and butter kitchen table issues that are important to everybody. I think gives him a chance to, to actually win because he recognizes, like you said, that we need a grassroots, wholly new movement to affect change. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's the same for, for Bashir, right? Because he certainly recognized that he only won by like 5,000 votes, right? And what has he done since then? He's tried to govern in a way that he's worked with Republicans when he could, but on other issues, he's been adamant in that He's not going to compromise with them because they can override his vetoes. You, we've seen that in, you know, executive actions that he's taken during the pandemic. We've seen that in other instances, too. And as a result, his approval rating across the state is like 60 percent. In eastern Kentucky, it's 54 percent approve. In every single region of Kentucky, more people approve of him than disapprove. And so I think that in the same respect, he has a better chance of winning reelection than perhaps it might appear for a Democrat in a state like Kentucky. But I think both of them recognize what you said in that we need a new approach to politics that emphasizes in places like Appalachia, Kentucky, the South, wherever. 
we need an approach to politics that emphasizes that there are real issues affecting real people's lives and that if we address those and try new things to make it better, then we could get results from that in in like an election. And so I think that you're absolutely right about the kind of new movement that we need. However, I lean more towards the idea of it can come within an established party like the Democrats to happen. But I'm not opposed to a new type of labor party set up, you know, anything that can emerge like that. I'm all in favor of that. Um, so I, I, I think that you made a lot of good points. And, and there are, there's a lot where you and I are in wholehearted agreement on that. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I definitely think the idea of creating a new party that will be able to take on the Democrat and Republican machines is is a little bit naive. I'm not under any sort of well, no, no. It's not. It's not naive. It's just that the way that the power structure has been set up, it's 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 improbable. It's so difficult, right? For yeah. for new viable third party movements to take hold because the power structure, as it is, the duopoly is what Andrew Yang calls it a lot, is solely designed to keep certain Democrats in power and certain Republicans in power, and then a few people in the middle can go back and forth like in certain swing districts or states or whatever. And as long as we have that system. That's supplemented by closed primaries where only like 12% of the the eligible voting population in those primaries show up. So you get candidates who are often on, you know, not representative of the whole mass of people who could vote. And the way that the system is set up is what makes it so difficult for a new movement like that to emerge. Um, You know, it's not, I don't think it's naive. I think it's just made difficult by the people who already have power because they don't want to lose it no yeah you're absolutely right i also kind of want to go back to the point i made about culture in appalachia and yeah go for and it. identity politics but i want to step away from identity politics because I, I want to talk about um just appalachian culture in general specifically southern appalachian culture i don't i don't admittedly i don't know much about northern appalachia oh that's okay um, it's it's such it's such a i listened to an appalachia episode about this recently and like the way that it Appalachia is designated geographically and politically and socially that, you know, it's, it's, it's malleable, I'll say. So, you know, and we're from, you know, Southern Appalachia, so that it's okay that that's what we know most about. So go for it. But I really, I want to talk about sort of, sort of faith in, in Appalachia because it's indisputable that Southern Appalachia specifically is one of the most religious places in the United States. Specifically, you have like the Pentecostal denomination, which is, which is almost um, exclusively found within the Appalachian mountains. I mean, you have pieces of it spread out throughout the South, but it's, it's for the most part an Appalachian phenomena, deeply, deeply religious communities. And in the, and, and in the case of some, almost puritanical but that's that's the culture that 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 is the that is the core demographic and i think that it's so easy to say well these people are conservative so we don't need to appeal worry about appealing to them because at the end of the day they're wrong about social issues like gay marriage and abortion so let's just move on to the other people in the area but in regions like appalachia when that's the majority, when that's the whole area, your choices are to either adapt to that deep faith 
that deep culture of faith, because even people who aren't religious in these areas have been influenced by this century long culture of faith in these areas. So you can either adapt to that and learn how to work around that, or you can completely abandon the area. And I think that the, the route that the current democratic party and not just the party at large, but also a lot of younger Democrats throughout the country. And even some here is to just completely ignore that and sort of cast them aside and demonize them as opposed to trying to figure out where the common ground meets. I think that it's still our job to try to better their lives. And I think it's, I think it's become extremely common to, to be okay with leaving this group of people behind simply because they disagree with you on certain issues. And I think that that is an extremely dangerous game to play. Oh, it is. Absolutely. That's my soapbox on that. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right because this is one of the most important aspects of our whole democratic process, Democrat, you know, democratic with a small D, you know, just our principle of us discussing and debating with one another about important issues and then voting on it. And, you know, certainly we have, we as like a country, the United States have not always lived up to that ideal of a democracy. And for the longest time, and still even to this day, certain people, their votes have been more likely to count than other people. But the ideal that we're striving towards, it has to include people, even people that we disagree with. And, you know, there there can't be this idea of, like you said, shutting people out just because we disagree. And there's a difference between shutting people out just there's a difference between, you know, benign disagreement about things like how much this person should pay in taxes, someone like, you know, or how much funding should go towards universal health care. There's a difference between those kind of disagreements and disagreements about who counts as a person, you know, like, but the whole idea of shutting people out just because we disagree with them and not wanting to engage with them in the political process, not wanting to debate or discuss with them because we disagree with them, like you said, as I, as I think you, I took you to mean, I, I, I totally agree that we have to stay away from that because all that does is not only blind us to how they approach issues, and it's important for us to understand where other people are coming from, you know, especially in a, in a democratic society. But it's also important for them because by shutting them out and by saying, oh, we're not going to try to go talk to them because we can't win them over. That's exactly what got us to this position and this place. And that's what act, that's what gave us somebody like Trump, who was so detrimental and destructive to the country because for better or worse, he spoke to people who for a long time had been ignored by the people who were in power. And when we shut out people, like you were saying that we do, I totally agree with you. Then that, that lets them know that, Hey, they're not even wanting to engage with us and talk to us and show up and listen to us. And so that just worsens the polarization and the division that we already have. And so I think you're absolutely right. We have to, include everybody in these conversations about political matters, about social issues, and, you know, be honest about where we disagree. But at the same time, this is one thing that um, I've been listening to. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this morning about Albert Camus. Um, 
who for those listening don't know is um, was a, a philosopher in the 20th century. And the whole drive behind a big part of his philosophy was that we can't allow ourselves to no longer see the humanity of other people. And I think that perfectly applies to what we're talking about here is that, you know, I can, I can disagree all day long with somebody about political issues, but I have to still acknowledge that they're a human being, that their worth and their dignity and their value as a human being ought to be honored. And that, you know, for the benefit of the doubt, I should listen to what they have to say and understand where they're coming from. And when we do that, when we actually, you know, um, like we were talking about earlier, when you actually do show up and listen and talk to people, you see a phenomenal response. Like um, we saw with a lot of people around here who voiced support for Charles Booker back in the primary in 2020. But you see it elsewhere, like in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman is going yeah. to these places that traditional Democrats, moderate, so to speak, Democrats would not go to because they couldn't win there and they might as well not even show up. And John Fetterman, what does he do? He goes to rural Pennsylvania that has been ignored by Democratic politicians. And as a result, he's 20, 30 points ahead in the Democratic primary. Why? Because he listens and because he advocates for solutions to practical problems like infrastructure, like funding for health care, greater uh, rights for for um, for um, workers, you know. And so I think that that idea of showing up and listening and discussing and debating, like you were saying, I think that is so important. And I agree with you that it needs to be talked about more. No, absolutely. And I think I think that he is one of the primary examples of the the direction that if we're to continue, if if the Democratic Party hopes to win in these areas, that's the direction that they're going to have to go to. Yeah, I sort of think that it started out with a candidate like AOC, um, but I think that her time is kind of gone. I think she's sort of I don't want to say fallen from grace, but you think she's been uh, uh, establishmentized? I, I don't want to say she's been establishmentized. All I'm going to say is I don't think that she is the the anti-establishment, anti-big money, everyday working class woman that she started as. And I mean, you know, if she's improved herself and she's happy, good for her. Mm-hmm. But I think that we need to let go of the idea that she's the next Bernie Sanders. In the words of Toby Keith, she ain't as good as she once was. She ain't as good as she once was. Yeah, absolutely. And that is where, unfortunately, I had to uh, cut the audio short of that conversation that Bailey and I had. Uh, the last 10 minutes, as I said, we kind of got into discussing the 2024 presidential election. Uh, And like I said, I'm sure that he and I will return to that uh, subject at a later time. But I do hope that you all enjoyed that bit of audio that I was able to include. Uh, It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed this week's episode. And if there's anything I hope that you all would take away from this episode, and I'm sure that Bailey would agree with me on this, it's that the most important thing that we can do is whether you're talking about politics or whether you're talking about just individual relationships between ourselves and other people, the most important thing you can do is listen to them and try to approach things from their perspective or try to understand where they're coming from, but also to always remember that despite any kind of disagreements we may have, we're still all just human beings. We're still all just trying to make our way through this crazy world, and hopefully that will help us to approach one another in every kind of situation that we're in, whether it's 
in our personal lives, our, our careers, our academic lives, whatever. Hopefully that will help us to remember to always approach one another with love and understanding and compassion. But seeing as how this week we can't end with the typical uh, farewell between uh, my guest and I, I thought I would uh, end the audio from the conversation this way. So thank you all so much. Well, I hope that you guys have enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and continuing to support the podcast. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to follow the podcast on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search at App Firesides, A-P-P Firesides, just how it sounds. And if you're enjoying that music that you're listening to, that is a piece called In the Sweet By and By by a great artist named Zachariah Hickman. And you can find him on YouTube. He has a channel with great music and some other cool stuff on there. Be sure to check him out. And be sure also to join us next time on Appalachian Firesides. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.